0: Hello, and welcome to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. My name is Andrew Robinson. I am joined by Rachel Washburn, our associate from our Geopolitical Strategy Group, as well as Peter Chur, Academy Securities Head of Macro Strategy. We are also joined by two of Academy Securities Advisory Board members. Lieutenant General David Deptula served in the Air Force for over 34 years. He participated in command leadership for the 1991 Operation Desert Storm Air Campaign, the no-fly zone over Iraq in the late 1990s, as well as the air campaign over Afghanistan in 2001 and the 2005 South Asia Tsunami Relief Operations. We're also joined by Brigadier General Anthony Tata, who served in the United States Army and commanded combat units in the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions, as well as the 10th Mountain Division. He is a frequent contributor and national security expert for multiple media networks. We have some interesting topics to discuss today. We're going to talk about North Korea. We're going to discuss Russia and the G7, as well as how is countering violent extremism helping achieve the United States' national interests. So let's jump right into it.
1: Thanks, Andy. Yeah, General Tata, I feel like you are perfectly primed to address that. What is your take on the update as we enter the summit later this evening.
2: Well, thank you, Rachel. What I see happening right now is the synchronization of the elements of power, national power, being diplomatic, information, military, and economic. And this administration has expertly synchronized those elements of power to get Kim Jong-un potentially um, to the negotiating table and to uh, trade off his... Uh, nuclear arsenal and ambitions for an economic, uh, prosperous uh, future. And it's important to note that Kim Jong-un came to power with uh, two uh, visions, two objectives, whereas his father and grandfather came with one. His grandfather came with the idea of having a self-reliant nation. Uh, His father came Uh, to power with the idea of having the most powerful military and then kim jong-un had two uh, being a nuclear power and being an economic power and uh, perhaps uh, he did so to uh, trade one for the other knowing that it may not be palatable uh, the international community may not accept uh, and if they do great he's a he can be a nuclear power, but uh, he knows that he would never be an economic power. So I think uh, what you have is a little bit of um, gamesmanship and brinksmanship going on here where Kim Jong-un may be prepared to deal away uh, his nuclear ambitions uh, if he gets a significant uh, economic package in return And, and that's something that also could be good for the U.S. economy, uh, businesses, and, and, of course, Japan and South Korea and others, uh, because it is a pretty blank slate in North Korea. A lot of infrastructure, transportation infrastructure needs to be built to connect small towns to bigger cities so that uh, if, if indeed, they're going to try to mimic uh, South Korea uh, in their economic prowess, uh, then uh, they've got to uh, be able to transport workers uh, to, to these economic engine areas that uh, will be created. So that's, there's an opportunity here, and it's one that uh, didn't exist 18 months ago, and, and I think the United States is uh, poised to uh, perhaps achieve something historic here on the Korean Peninsula.
1: General Duttula, uh what are your thoughts?
2: Well, I concur with the remarks of the General. I'd also
3: add that I think while going into this summit, it, it's crucial for the American public to understand uh, that while peace is a positive aspiration, uh, the outcome uh, is dependent on hard power calculations. Uh, and, you know, put that into English, what that means for the United States is uh, our firm stand on the proven strategy of peace through strength, is uh, how Kim Jong-un got here. Uh, He's got one overriding objective, and that's to retain his personal power. Uh, He's been willing to sacrifice the fundamental well-being of his citizens, uh, ostracize himself from the world community, uh, and he's uh, continued to suffocate any notion of a functioning economy. Now, I, I think he's starting to come around on the last one, Uh, But it's that threat to his uh, well-being and regime standing that uh, is kind of pushing him in that direction. Uh, So uh, it it is, uh, quite frankly, uh, that calculus of hard military power that he recognizes that the president's willing to use that power. Uh, And, you know, I I think that... um, Uh, The president succeeded in getting Kim to understand that if he continues his aggressive behavior by building a nuclear arsenal uh, and is unwilling to pursue a peaceful resolution, uh, he creates a greater threat to his existence than he does by taking a chance with a more conciliatory path. Uh, And I think, um, uh, as had been stated earlier, uh, you know the potential of a greater economy, a powerful, more economy is one that gets us to a point uh, where there's some potential for a way ahead uh, that benefits both parties, quite frankly.
0: And then, Peter, if I could ask you, uh, what might be some uh, of the primary effects, secondary effects of uh, any lifting of sanctions uh, that are currently on North Korea, and as that affects uh, trade in that region and the rest of the world, possibly?
4: I think longer term it would be positive. I think the reality is this first meeting is more likely to be about personalities than any detailed negotiation. Trump is really not a detailed person. Did a lot of business with him in the past. He is a very good schmoozer and a very good salesperson. So I have high expectations that something, you know, some great sound bites will come out of this meeting, maybe some great photo ops. I think this really just sets the stage for proper negotiations to begin. So that's kind of what I'm looking for. I think there's a lot of, you know, good potential. The difficulty or the risk I think we face coming to this meeting is that Trump will want some sort of you know, respect from Kim Jong-un, and whether he is willing to provide that or not could be the turning point. I think this at some level will be a very simplistic battle of two personalities to see whether they can come to agreement. If they do, though, I think that we will see you know, growth in the region, growth in trade, and a lot of opportunity for the U.S. to step in and help that growth path, which would be very good for our customers, um, for our, you know, companies. And as the generals have often said, you know, the business follows the flag, so this would be a great new place to have the flag planted. Uh,
1: Gentlemen, moving, pivoting slightly, obviously we're right on the heels of the G7 summit, another major diplomatic uh, engagement for the president. He mentioned a handful of times, potentially Russia rejoining the G7, making it a G8. Is that something you guys, foresee actually happening? Can we maybe even engage in a a broader discussion on what Russia is doing in the Middle East, how they're trying to pursue their national interests, and how we uh, potentially could be responding to their uh, expanding influence?
2: Yes, so this is General Tata, and what I would say is that the announcement from the President at the G7, that he would prefer to have a G8 with Russia involved, to me, is very simply pre-Singapore maneuvering and perhaps a quid pro quo behind the scenes of support from Russia to either back off of North Korea or to help us in some way that we may or may not ever learn about, uh, just in the same way that... Uh, we negotiated with China to help them, for example, Kimdo flu on Chinese uh, airline uh, to uh, Singapore so uh, to me, it was a verbal pronouncement, and as Peter just alluded to, you know he's he's good at making wave top statements like that and and uh, you know the details behind that, whether or not there's um, penance to be paid for Uh, invading Crimea and um, the disruption in Ukraine uh, and the reason that they were kicked out of the G8. um, Whether or not they come back in and whether or not there's some contingencies for that I think remains to be seen. I think the president made himself very clear that that was a different um, administration that allowed that to happen and whether or not he is you know, meaning to say that this is the new status quo or that they need to get out of Crimea. That's that's a different discussion. But, um, you know, I think that the president sees Russia as someone, uh, as he said, we have a world to run, and, and Russia is a big part of that world, and, and we can't just ignore them. Uh, by the same token, they are an enemy. They are someone who wants to disrupt us. Uh, they are someone who um, we duel with. Uh, through the other elements of power uh, on a daily basis, whether it's diplomatic or information or economic. And thankfully, we're not dealing with them on a military basis.
1: Thanks, sir. Uh, All right, General Duttula, what are your thoughts on how Russia is expanding their influence?
3: Uh, Well, look, like all um, modern nation states, nations uh, operate in accordance with their strategic interests, and Russia is no exception. Uh, Now, that said, I I think there's been a – Pretty significant shift in uh, over the last couple of years in Western political, media, and public perceptions of a Russia uh, and its malign behaviors, uh, and that, that's pretty complete. Um, people see through Putin um, for what he is, uh, and, and that is an actor who is solely interested uh, in uh, uh revitalizing, if you will, or capitalizing on Russian nationalism uh, to keep himself in power as well as uh, attempt to extend his influence. Um, So Russia will be Russia, um, and uh, I think that uh, people understand that. Uh, I think think that they have uh, serious economic challenges uh, ahead. Uh, and they're rapidly heading, I should say rapidly, but they're, they're eventually heading to uh, a, a crisis stage where internally um, they're going to have to resolve some of their economic issues. Otherwise, um, their, their, their influence in the external world uh, is going to collapse. Uh, now, obviously, they're propped up by uh, the possession of an extraordinarily large inventory of nuclear weapons, um, uh, and their behavior in terms of tossing away uh, treaties like the INF Treaty uh, and uh, uh, proceeding with uh, aggressive behaviors as they uh, was demonstrated in Crimea and still is being uh, evidenced in uh, eastern Ukraine. Uh, You you know, those things, it's interesting to hear the President talk about Putin in terms of wanting to bring him back into the the G7 to make it the G8, but at the same time, um, I I think that uh, allied nations are wise to question that uh, move, uh, given the uh, extraordinarily aggressive actions on the part of Putin. So. You know, back to what General Tata said in terms of positioning and talk, we'll see what the President's policies are with respect to Russia as we move
4: forward. General Tepula, it's uh, Peter Church. You were very instrumental in helping us identify that over that one weekend, we were unlikely to escalate the situation in Syria, which was very helpful to our clients. question is now – what is the risk of escalation somewhere in that region, whether it's Syria or Turkey or elsewhere with Russian influence and in particular, my one you know additional concern is that often nations when they do hit tough economic times, the one thing they resort to is to you know bolster the national identity by being more aggressive. Is that a risk in the region uh,
3: Peter, between you and me, yeah, that is a that is a concern because one could make the case that, that, that in a very systemic way, that's what Putin's been doing, uh, to divert attention away from conditions internal in Russia, uh, to bolster nationalism by taking the positions that he has in Crimea and Ukraine. Um, and and he, look, the guy, the guy is, if you, if you put yourself into his shoes and see what he's doing – Um, He's taking actions to uh, uh, extend that uh, perception base, if you will. Uh, What he's doing in Turkey right now is pretty incredible. And it's not, you know, it's an unabashed assault on NATO and attempting to move Turkey out of NATO's influence by offering offering Turkey sales of the S-400 advanced surface-to-air missile system. Uh, and which then, I don't know if the audience is aware of it, but there's been legislation introduced to prevent Turkey from acquiring our most advanced fighter aircraft, the F-35. Well, okay, if that happens, um, then what does Turkey do? That allows Putin to offer an alternative aircraft, although I think it would be very unwise for Turkey to do so. But you can see the kind of wedge that he's trying to drive between Turkey and NATO Um, I think uh, his actions with respect to Syria are already a fait accompli. He has undone 40 years of U.S. uh, uh, effort in the Middle East to exclude Russia by securing uh, an air base and a seaport in Syria, uh, and the previous administration let him do that. Uh, We're not going to undo that anytime soon. Um, so some of the moves he's making externally are covering up some of the weaknesses internally, and he'll continue to do that. There is a concern not just in the Middle East, but also um, the threats that he posed, uh, poses to the Baltics. Um, so uh, y- you know the- there are still a lot of unknowns, and uh, as economic pressures worsen internally, there's the potential that. Uh, uh, he'll respond by uh, provocations uh, in the security sphere to cover those up.
1: Sir, sure, to follow up on that exact point, what maybe initially started as a bit of a diversion for Putin has ultimately, as you mentioned, we, it's seen real results. They've actually really amped up their influence in the region. Uh, do you feel like they ultimately hold the cards with negotiations in Syria? Are they, do they have more influence over Turkey at this point? Than we do um, is maybe that just a reflection of some of our bureaucratic limitations, like when it comes to operating internationally.
3: Are two separate points. Um, I don't think that they hold. Uh, yeah, w- w- the United States still has uh, uh, enormous, not just the United States, but uh, NATO. Our NATO partners hold enormous uh, influence with respect to um, the Turkish government, which is which is a whole interesting conversation all in and of itself. Um, It it is significant what Erdogan has done in terms of moving Turkey more towards a theocracy, away from uh, the secular governance uh, that uh, Kemal Ataturk had established. Uh, Again, that's that's another interesting discussion. But the Russians have reached out with some of these alternatives, and, of course, Turkey is trying to play those off against NATO to gain our support. So we'll see how that uh, 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 evolves. Um, With respect to Syria, Russia is already there, and they have an enormous influence, uh, much greater than the United States, in how that outcome uh, or how that uh, country is going to resolve, uh, in terms of any kind of a, uh, of a way forward with the different, uh, rebel groups. Um, and while the United States, uh, um, certainly has concern, uh, they don't have as much influence in the outcome as does Russia does in the case of Syria.
0: So, Peter, when we're looking at, uh, Russia and Turkey and, you know, obviously the influence that is being put on them and their uh obviously their economy and the stability of their economy um definitely plays into that as well do you have any thoughts about uh that
4: that that portion of it yeah i think that and kind of the region in particular we've been still talking to clients that we think there's going to be upward pressure on energy prices as there seems very little hope of you know any simple resolution in the near term in that region Which is one of the reasons right now we're seeing this big disparity between the price of brent oil versus the price of wti that's been favorable for a lot of companies over here it's been very good for the refiners etc and we think that dispersion will kind of continue for a period of time until something can be done to stabilize that entire middle east region in addition you throw in you have got venezuela with issues so you've got a lot of current issues at some of the larger oil producers of the world and little that seems to rectify or fix those problems in the near term. I'm not sure how you see it, General Deptula, but is that region's stability realistic, or is this kind of ongoing problem is going to continue to lead to concerns about energy production? Yeah, I agree with
3: your comments. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, as long as... is. The instability continues. Um, the, there are going to be concerns about uh, um, uh, oil and the uh, 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 the stability of uh, availability and, uh, therefore, pricing.
1: General Deptula, in the last. 15 years, 18 years of warfare in America, we've been countering violent extremism. We very recently have been engaging more diplomatically and with a national security focus with other nation states. Uh, Countering violent extremism is a major tenet of the Trump administration's national security strategy. How is that advancing our national interests um, as we move into more challenging and complex and interconnected times?
3: Uh, Violent extremism, it's important to understand, has been with us as long as man and woman have been on the face of the earth. So I think it's right in the last national security strategy that was moved out of sort of the principal uh, priority uh, of our national security military interests down sort of uh, in an appropriate location, and that's below uh, the ability to deal with nation states that have the capability to pose existential threats against the United States. So while it's important, um, you, you know, we, we need to pay the appropriate attention to be able to mow the grass and uh, 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 shut down any um, uh, potential major events that might result um or pop up, uh, it's not – I would suggest to you that over the last, uh, since 9-11, 17 years, um, we've really overemphasized uh, and uh, placed an enormous amount of resources uh, to uh, halt the violent extremism and, and, in fact, have been quite successful. I mean, the fact of the matter is there are more people who have died by falling in bathtubs in the United States than there have been by violent extremism uh, in that same ensuing period of time. That's not to um, lessen the importance, uh, but quite frankly, the the only reason um, or the majority, the major region that we need to be concerned with violent extremism is if in the event um, one of these folks gets a hold of a nuclear device, If they're willing to blow themselves up with conventional explosive, they'd be willing to blow themselves up with a nuclear weapon, and that could have significant implications in the United States. So um, quite frankly, I I think what's more of concern is uh, our ability uh, to prevent the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction uh, and uh, uh, at the same time uh, keep a lid on uh, potential violence uh, or cells that uh, uh,
4: propagate um, violence as a means to an end. One follow-up on that, when we had our last podcast, the issue of refugees and the potential issues from you know, the flood of refugees came up, but also are we doing enough to you know, help the refugees at home so that some of these issues don't proliferate or that there's less you know, antagonism towards us? Is that something that you see as well? Um, I think, uh, to be uh, candid, Peter, I think
3: that's unobtainium, Uh, and that's what got us involved in 17 years of ongoing warfare in Afghanistan. Uh, I'm a believer in real politique, uh, and I would tell you that we met our critical U.S. national security interest in Afghanistan by the 31st of December, 2001. Um, We removed the Taliban regime from power. Uh, a government uh, was in place that was friendly to the United States and our uh, coalition allies, and we eliminated the al-Qaeda's terrorist training camps in Afghanistan. See you later. Have a nice life. Uh, If you do it again, we'll be back. But instead, we accomplished those objectives so quickly that we hadn't even deployed uh, the hundreds of thousands of boots on the ground to follow that once they got there, we're now in search of a mission. So we went off on this notion of winning hearts and minds and trying to reestablish economic prosperity and equality uh, and attempted to change a collection of 13th century tribes into a modern Jeffersonian democracy. That ain't going to happen. Uh, so I believe we need to take a hard look at what are critical U.S. national security interests and only get involved use, with the use of military force. Uh, to address those uh, and not try to solve uh, the underlying uh, causes for um, economic uh, inequity uh, and uh, social behaviors,
4: and that makes you know a lot of sense to me from what you're saying. And one of our theories has been, from at least a macroeconomic uh, standpoint, is that we will continue to see efforts to develop domestic energy production, domestic, you know, the ability to transport that energy to where it's needed domestically as part of an overall defense strategy.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the smartest things we could do.
0: Well, I just wanted to say thank you uh, to all our listeners uh, for taking the time, and definitely thank you for our contributors, uh, Lieutenant General uh, Deptula, uh, Brigadier General uh, Tato. We appreciate your time and your insights. And uh, thank you, Peter Chur and uh, Rachel Washburn, as well, um, for uh, all putting in on this. And we look forward to sharing more with our listeners uh, in the future. If you have any questions, um, feel free uh, to email us at info at academysecurities.com or visit our website at academysecurities.com. Uh, thank you again, everyone. Thanks very much for having me on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank
4: you.